Our next reading is continuing in Matthew chapter 7 from verse 13 to 20. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Well, last week I opened by saying that the Christian life is hard. If you're wondering whether I was right about that or not, Jesus backs me up in the very next verse, in the very first verse that we're looking at this morning. Now, of course, he's not backing me up. Uh, I'm simply saying what he says. The narrow gate and the way that leads to life is hard. Will we continue to walk it? Last week we saw how God helps us in the Christian life by answering our prayers and giving us good gifts. And we also saw how a lot of the ethical instruction of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount can be summarized by the golden rule. That's verse 12 uh, that we looked at last week. And as I mentioned then, uh, the golden rule serves as something of a bookend with chapter 5, verse 17 of Matthew, uh, which is earlier in the sermon, where Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so between 5.17 and 7.12, you have Jesus giving the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. And now having given that, he finishes the sermon by leaving his hearers with a challenge and a choice. Now you'll notice the, the sermon is titled, Two Ways, One Walk, meaning you can only walk one of those ways. But it also has, as you can see, part one. Because part two will be next week and we'll look at the rest of chapter seven. Uh, unlike the Mission Impossible franchise, I haven't done this so that I can make more money. And I've done this because the last section of chapter seven from verses 13 to 27, it really all goes together. In each of these four passages, we see Jesus presenting two different categories of people. There are those who enter by the narrow gate and those who do not. There are those who produce good fruit and those who do not. There are those whom Jesus knows and those who do not. There are those who build their houses on the rock and those who do not. Between these, uh, these passages, there are connections between each of the sections, so uh, it was a bit difficult to try and divide it up, but uh, I landed on doing the first two and the last two together, and I'll elaborate on those connections more today and next week. 
And so this morning, we're going to focus on the first two groups, which are found in verses 13 to 20. And as for uh, headings for these, I figured I couldn't do any better than what Jesus himself gave us. So firstly, enter by the narrow gate. Secondly, beware of false prophets. These are the two key instructions that Jesus gives in this passage for walking the way that leads to life. And so let's begin with his first instruction, enter by the narrow gate. Now, once again, as we've seen all along throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses timeless imagery here. Now, you can picture it, can't you? You can picture a narrow gate, perhaps like a, like a pool gate, for example. You know, something like that cannot have many people walking through it at once, even though the children will try. But a wide gate, perhaps like the gate on your driveway, can have multiple people walking through it all at the same time. And Jesus tells us in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. Now, at this point, he hasn't told us why. He's just given us the instruction. And because it's Jesus, well, you know it's worth obeying that instruction. If he says enter by the narrow gate, that's what you should do. Enter by the narrow gate. But Jesus actually doesn't leave us in the dark as to why we should. He tells us why the narrow gate is the right choice. And notice how these two instructions in verses 13 and 14 are the exact opposites of each other. One gate is wide, the other is narrow. One way is easy, the other is hard. One destination is destruction, the other is life. One has many walking through it, and the other, few. And friends, this is the way of the kingdom. It is binary. Kids, do any of you know what binary means? It's a tricky word. All right, well, let me, oh, yeah. Zeros and ones. Hey, we got a future programmer right there. Hey, Faith. Zeros and ones. Yeah, well, binary basically means it's one or the other, right? You think of the word bicycle. How many wheels does a bicycle have? Two. That's right. So bi often, when you put it before something, means two of something. So binary means that there are only two options. There are only two choices. That is all. And you can only choose one of them. That's how it is with the kingdom of heaven. You can choose the way that leads to the kingdom of heaven, or you can choose the way that leads away from it. And there is no way of getting around that. That is how it is. I don't know if you've ever tried to put one foot on an escalator that is going up and another one that is going down. Has anyone ever tried that? Yes, of course you haven't. Because we all know how that's going to end, right? It won't be pretty. You cannot walk both ways ways. So it is with the kingdom of heaven. This may seem like a simple instruction, but it is a crucial one. Because even though it may be, uh, it may be obvious when we're talking about physical examples, we all know that you can't do that. Many people think that that's not how it works with spirituality. Some think that, you know, you can, you can take a little bit of Jesus You can take a little bit of hedonism. You can take a little bit of Eastern spirituality. And, you know, you can walk all those roads and it'll all get you to some good good place. 
They say it doesn't matter which path you take, or even if you take multiple paths, they will all lead to spiritual wonderfulness. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. That's not how it works. It is either the narrow gate or the wide gate. The hard way or the easy way. Just as God gave Israel the choice, as we read in Deuteronomy 30 earlier, the way that leads to life or destruction, you choose. Some Christians debate about the positioning of the gates and the pathways and what they mean. Some say that, you know, they're basically the same thing, whether it's the gate or the way, you know, it's, you know, all the same. Others will say that the path actually leads to the gate, and once you walk through the gate, then you'll arrive at the destination. I think the right view is the one that follows the order of Jesus' words here in verses 13 and 14. A person chooses which gate they walk through, and then the way is the experience of a person's life here and now before they reach the final destination. Now, it's a, it's a small distinction, and it's not all that important, but I think it is one that demonstrates the Christian life. The choice to follow Jesus and to walk his way, it's not an easy one. Coming to and walking through the narrow gate is itself a difficult choice. And as I said last week, it is definitely the better choice, even if it does not make life easier. But then beyond, after walking through the gate, the way that, that, that one continues to walk in faith, in trust of Jesus, is narrow. It is hard. And the word translated hard there is a word that gives a sense of pressure, a sense of squeezing and, and, and of narrowing like a bottleneck, which is suitable given that it's a narrow gate. But the word is also used in the New Testament to describe affliction, particularly affliction that has come from following Jesus. And that's why the ESV has translated it as hard, and I think it's a suitable translation. It gives that sense of, of squeezing, of pressure, of difficulty, of hardship, of affliction. So Jesus is saying we are called to turn our back on the world and on its treasures, and we are called to take up our crosses and to expect affliction. And no wonder Jesus tells us to count the cost before we follow him. And it's worth asking the question, brothers and sisters, However long you've been on the path of following Jesus for, do we experience affliction on account of our faith? I'm not talking about the the general kind of hardship that, you know, that is a result of the fall. Things like illness and, and war and economic downturn, that sort of thing. Every human being on the planet experiences that kind of difficulty as a result of those No, I'm talking about the kind that results from following Jesus. Humiliation and dishonor for bearing his name and sharing his gospel. The internal affliction of of choosing to restrain ourselves rather than to indulge in sin. The weariness of prioritizing godliness over self-comfort. If we aren't experiencing the kind of affliction that comes from following Christ then it's a good time to ask if there are some significant areas in our lives where we are not being faithful to Jesus. Is our way easy 
because we are not actually taking up our crosses where we should be. Now, I don't say this to condemn us, but it's a good method of taking stock of how we are going in our walk with Christ. Now, contrast this with the wide gate. The way of the wide gate is easy. It is the path of least resistance. See, there's a reason uh, that our footpaths are made of smooth concrete and not piles of sharp rocks. If it was the latter, then, well, nobody would use them. There are millions of people walking around the streets of Tokyo because they're easy to walk on, but there are far fewer climbing Mount Fuji. The way of the wide gate is easy, and many walk through it. And I'm certain that those two things actually feed each other. It's easy, so many people take it. And then because many people are taking it, they look around at all the people walking the same path with them, and they think to themselves, well, seven billion people can't be wrong. They reassure themselves of the decision that they make, and they feel more and more confident in it. And that is a very real danger. We all feel peer pressure, don't we? We understand what it's like to be in a crowd where everybody is doing something. Sometimes we we don't even think about whether what everyone is doing is the right thing or not, and we just get caught up in the moment. It's just much easier to be swept along with the current. Safety in numbers. Nobody likes being the odd one out. The way is easy and many walk it. As Christians, we must beware of the temptation to conform to the crowd. Time and again, professing Christians have compromised on biblical truth because they have sought wider acceptance. They've wanted to be friends with the world. Brothers and sisters, we can't do that. Heed the warning of James. He says in chapter 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot be both. It is binary, friends. You cannot shake hands with the devil and think God's going to be okay with that. Stay off the wide way. That is the devil's territory. And the devil is not dumb. He paves that path, makes it really smooth, really easy to walk on, and he puts a raft of enticing things on it. He sets up refreshment stands and massage parlors where people indulge in whatever their flesh desires. Scores of people walk through that wide gate as though it were the turnstiles at Disney World chattering excitedly with one another, asking which ride they're most pumped about going on and which restaurant they're looking forward to engorging themselves in. Little do they know that the end of that path is destruction. And do you notice that that is the key difference between these gates and between these ways? You see, the narrow gate might be lonelier and the way is difficult. But what is its destination? 
It leads to life. It ends in life. Those on the wide path are headed towards a sunset. They're headed towards the end of the day. But those on the narrow path are headed towards a sunrise, a brand new day. That's not to say that a person on the hard path doesn't have true life here and now. That's, that's certainly true. <laughs> Proverbs 12, 28 says, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. And Jesus himself says in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Those who walk the path of righteousness, those who walk the narrow way, they have life in the here and now. But the promise of life Jesus speaks of here is that of eternal life in him. The most amazing thing about the narrow gate and the hard way is that in the end, that once they reach the destination, every person who has gone through the narrow gate and walked the hard way will look back over all that they have walked. They will look back over all the affliction that they have experienced on the count of Christ, all the hardship that they bore for his name. And the moment that they reach their destination, the moment they get there, that will look back, that will enter God's kingdom, and they will say, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. The eternal life, the glory that is yet to be revealed for the saints of God will infinitely surpass, infinitely surpass even the worst of our afflictions in this life. Who wouldn't take that path? We understand this concept, don't we? People go through grueling training and risk their lives just so that they can stand up on the world's highest peak on Mount Everest and feel the elation and the achievement of reaching that summit. Mothers endure hours of labor so that they can hold a newborn in their arms. If we know that the destination is worth it, then we gladly pay the cost. That's the issue, isn't it? Too many of us cannot see far enough to see that the destination is worth it. Too many of us doubt that the destination really is that good. All we see is the gate and all we see is the path and we, and we weigh it up based on the here and the now. I don't know if I want that kind of affliction. If you're here this morning and you've not yet turned your back on the world and turned to Jesus, my friend, there is no middle path. There is no place before the gates where you can stand in limbo and wonder why you're making your choice and hope that God doesn't take you before you make your decision. There is no middle gate which is medium-sized. There is no path that is only level three difficulty also known as moderate. 
By default, because every human being has inherited Adam's sin, we are on the wide way. For any who have not repented and turned to Jesus, their way leads to destruction. So I urge you, look beyond the easy life. Look beyond the comforts and the pleasures of this world and see the destination of destruction. And see the narrow gate. See that it may be hard, but that its way leads to life. This is why Jesus says that he has come to give life. Because the default position of every person is death. Hear Jesus' words. Enter through the narrow gate. Look through it. See beyond the hardships. See the destination of life. See eternal life. Life lived in glorious, sin-free, affliction-free ecstasy. Eternal life with our infinite, eternal God. That is the kingdom of heaven that awaits at the end of that road. And if you're here and you're wondering what that looks like, what it means to to enter the narrow gate and to walk that road, then I would love to speak to you about that after. It begins by turning away from sin and asking God for forgiveness and putting your faith in Christ. And brothers and sisters, fellow pilgrims on the way, let me encourage you to press on. When the heat is on, when you feel all alone, when the rocks beneath your feet are making them bleed, know that it is all worth it. That first sunrise will be nothing like you've ever seen. Look to what Christ has done for you, all that he has endured so that you may by grace enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow road and fix your eyes on him and the promise of eternal life that he has laid for you. You might be the only one in your workplace. You might be the only one among your group of friends or in your family that is walking the narrow way. And it may feel lonely and hard as you walk it. I feel it whenever I spend more than just a few seconds scrolling my social media feeds. But you are not alone. We are not alone. Jesus didn't say that there was only one who went through the gate. He says there are few. And together, as his people, as his brothers and sisters, as fellow pilgrims on the way, we press on together with eyes on the prize, with eyes on the destination of life. Together, we encourage one another through the trials and through the hardship. That is the whole point of church of being the church, of gathering together, of encouraging and exhorting one another. We do that as his body, as his people. If you haven't read it yet, I'm sure I've already encouraged this before, but let me encourage you again to read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. There are many versions of it, including children's versions. And Bunyan takes this image of the narrow gate and the hard way, and he writes an excellent allegory of the Christian life. It is well worth your time for encouragement for your soul. Enter by the narrow gate, 
Its way, it's, its way is hard, but it is the way that leads to life. Be one of the few, brothers and sisters. Press on in being one of the few, because the cost is worth it. And one way that you remain on that path is to beware of false prophets, which brings us to our second instruction. Kids, can any of you tell me what a prophet is? Someone that preaches God's word? Yeah, that's reasonably close. Yep, anyone else? Yeah, a prophet, let me tell you. A prophet is somebody who speaks for God. Now, these days, we often use the term to refer to somebody who predicts the future, right? Have you heard that before? Oh, he was a prophet. It was because he could tell what was coming. Now, there's a guy from the 16th century whose name was Nostradamus. He was very well known for this. He made lots of predictions about the future, and people argue about whether he really did or not because they were very vague and general, yeah. And certainly the prophets in the Bible would, would sometimes do that. But other times, they simply said what God wanted to say to a person or people right in that moment. What they needed to hear from God. You see, what mattered most for a prophet was that they spoke on behalf of God. So as you can imagine, if you are claiming to speak on behalf of God, then you really shouldn't get that wrong. That's why God established certain ways of testing whether the prophets were true prophets or not. And you can read about those in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. I encourage you to check that out. And what it came down to was that if a prophet said something would happen and it didn't, well, then that was a clear sign that they were not a prophet sent from God. Or if what they said did come to pass, but they then told the people to to worship a different God other than Yahweh, the true God, then also they were a false prophet. And so through the Old Testament, we, we find several references to false prophets. And one helpful one, which gives us an idea of the nature of false prophets, is in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. You you notice that? They're saying things that that just come from their own heads. They are not speaking God's words for him. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, not, not following the Lord, they say, oh, no disaster shall come upon you. An example of what that might look like is the very verse we just looked at. A false prophet would come along and say, no, actually, the wide way is totally fine. It does not lead to destruction. It's likely that the primary people in Jesus' mind when he ta- says this in chapter 7 are the Pharisees, those whom he has already addressed a few times in this sermon and in his ministry. 
But given its broad nature, when Jesus just says, beware of false prophets, there's no doubt that he is arming his disciples for the future. You see, the apostles themselves continued this warning that Jesus gives here. And we might be tempted to think that a false prophet, you know, might have been someone who genuinely thought they were speaking on God's behalf, but they were just mistaken, right? We might be tempted to think that a false prophet could have been somebody who had good intentions, but they just didn't hear God correctly. Well, Jesus does not give us room for that interpretation. Beware of false prophets, he says who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. They have a starving appetite to devour God's sheep. And they do so by dressing up as one. You see, this isn't a person with good intentions. They are deceitful and they use every means possible to fool the sheep into trusting them and then they devour them. So if they disguise themselves, if that's the case, if they come in with really good sheep costumes, they look on the outside like everything, they they use the right language, they they, they talk about God and Jesus, about how much they love him and, and all of that kind of thing, how are we to tell? I'm so glad you asked because Jesus switches the metaphor to tell us how we can tell. From verse 16, he says, You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You see, you will recognize them by their fruits. And Jesus, once again, uses an illustration that is so relatable. If he had lived in Darwin, he probably would have used the example of mango trees and banana trees, right? You don't get angry at a banana tree for not giving you mangoes. I mean, you might, but that's not the tree's fault. That's your fault. It's a good tree if it bears good fruit. If it's, it's a diseased tree if it bears bad fruit, and it is not possible for one to bear the other. You can tell if a, disease, if a tree is diseased by looking at its fruit. How do you beware of false prophets? Look at the fruit. So what is that fruit? What does the fruit of a false prophet look like? Well, there are the tests that I mentioned earlier from Deuteronomy 13 and 18 and characteristics of the false prophets in Jeremiah 23. Okay, so what, if what they say doesn't happen, they call people to walk away from the Lord or if they speak vain hopes or they speak visions from their own minds, okay, that, that's a false prophet. But we live in a time where God is no longer speaking through people the way that he did in the time of Jesus and the apostles, You see, Jesus and the apostles, they spoke authoritatively. They spoke the same way that the prophets in the Old Testament did. When they said, thus saith the Lord, because we all know that they spoke King James English back then. When they said, thus saith the Lord, it truly was the Lord speaking. 
We know that, and that is why the letters of the apostles have been gathered together, and, and, and the faithful deposit of their teaching has been preserved by God in the 27 books that we now call the New Testament. And so this, along with the Old Testament, is our final rule and authority. That is why we hold up the Bible and say, this is God's very word to us. Thus saith the Lord. Even for faithful Christians today who believe that there is a kind of prophecy that happens, none of them would say that such prophecies have the same authority as the Bible. So one bad fruit that is easy to look out for is anyone claiming that their words are just as inspired as the Bible. This is what Joseph Smith did, who founded the Mormons. So the Book of Mormon is precisely this claim. They put the same level of authority on the Book of Mormon as they do the Bible. Roman Catholics say that when the Pope speaks what is known as ex cathedra, that he speaks infallibly. So to be clear, not everything that the Pope says is infallible. It's only when he specifically speaks with this authority. And when he does, such words in this case, they carry the same authority as Scripture. The last time the Pope did that was Pope Pius XII in 1950, where he solemnly declared that the body and soul of Mary was taken up to heaven at the end of her life. And so that is considered by Catholics just as much God's words as the words that we are reading from Matthew 7 today. Friends, these are examples of false prophecy. That is bad fruit that we must steer clear of. But, you know, there usually aren't heaps of other examples of people making this claim. So how else do we detect bad fruit? Well, this is where it's worth looking at 2 Peter 2, verse 1, where the Apostle Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people. You notice the term there, the same word that Jesus used. Just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You notice how he references false prophets in the Old Testament era, and then he compares them to the false teachers that arise amongst us, amongst them in Peter's time, and amongst us today in this era of Jesus' church. So we must be careful of not just those who claim to speak for God, but really don't, but also those who claim to teach God's Word, but really don't. This is why we must test everything against the Word. And this is why pastors and teachers of the Word have a dangerous job. Anyone who enters the pulpit ought to do so with fear and trepidation. James warns those who seek to take on the task of teaching God's Word not to do so lightly. You know that you will, who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The church, all I am seeking to do when I get up here and all any man seeks to do when they stand in the pulpit is proclaim God's word. That is all we're doing. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm not trying to tell you something new. I'm not claiming that I've received some kind of revelation from God that you won't find in the pages of the Bible. 
I'm simply trying to speak God's words to his people and to any others who are here today. The late great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, commenting on the Apostle Paul's use of the term ambassador. He said, An ambassador is not a man who voices his own thoughts or his own opinions or views or his own desires. The very essence of the position of the ambassador is that he is a man who has been sent to speak for somebody else. That is all any preacher is doing. So please pray for me. And pray for any others who fill our pulpit, for Josh, our elder, for Hugh, who is preparing sermons on the book of Ruth, and any other guests that might take up this responsibility. And pray for any other pastors that you know who fill this task, because it is weighty. Pray that we would respect the weight of the task of being an ambassador for the Lord to speak on his behalf. Pray that we would do our work diligently, remaining faithful to God's word. Pray that we would apply it well in our time and in our place. Pray that we would proclaim God's word with the authority that it has. And pray that we ourselves would sit under it. Pray that we would let it shape and change us even as we declare it publicly. And please always come and and talk to us when you find something confusing or perhaps you're unsure about what has been said, perhaps something that I have missed. See, this is one of the reasons that we give the opportunity for question time on Sundays and why I ask for your your thoughts or your questions about the passage as I prepare for it. Because our desire is that we would always sit under the Word of God as a church. I don't have any authority The only authority I have is the same authority that I myself sit under, the Word of God. How do you recognize a false prophet, a false teacher? You assess whether their teaching is sound, whether it is according to the Word. But the teaching isn't the only fruit, is it? Jesus has already called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites in the Sermon on the Mount and will do so again later on in his ministry. He was exposing the fact that they were wolves in sheep's clothing, diseased trees producing bad fruit. Now, Paul would later use the metaphor of fruit to describe that which grows out of the person who is walking in step with the Spirit, the good fruit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. Kids, you you familiar with that passage? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me encourage you not to just memorize it, but to, to think about, to consider what those words mean, what it looks like in our lives. And so spiritual fruit is certainly also meant to be true of pastors and teachers. When you read through the pastoral epistles in Timothy and Titus's letters, what is uh, Paul's letters to those two? What is unmistakably clear is that a person's, a pastor's life and character are just as significant as his teaching. So, how do you recognize his fruit? Whether he teaches well, 
and you look at his life. As Joel Beakey says, doctrine must produce life, and life must adorn our doctrine. There would be no point in me declaring God's word if I were a hypocrite. Now, the pastor is not going to be perfect in this, as only Jesus is perfect, but he should be exemplary. He should set an example for the believers, as Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. But we must all beware of false prophets by looking at the fruit of their lives. I'm, I'm included in this, not just in you assessing me, but also in me assessing others. You see, just as you are listening to my teaching, I also listen to the teaching of others. And when I listen to them, I don't only listen for whether their doctrine is sound, but I also listen for and observe where I have the opportunity that the, the things that they teach, that the doctrine they exclaim is producing godly fruit in their lives. I watch for this in my own life, which I invite you to do as well. Because, brothers and sisters, I fear God more than I fear losing my job. The reason I do is because the consequences of being a false teacher are spelled out clearly by our Lord in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus here recalls the language of John the Baptist from earlier in the book, from chapter 3, verse 10, where he uses these same words to describe the Pharisees and Sadducees. That is a picture of judgment, friends. The destination of the false teacher, of the false prophet, is the same as that of those who walk through the wide gate. It is destruction. Fire. And so Jesus finishes his warning with the same instruction that he gave in verse 16, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. As much as this is a solemn reminder for pastors and teachers, it is certainly one for all of us. Why? Because if you surround yourself with false prophets, if you surround yourself with false teachers, then you will listen to what they say. And not only will you listen to what they say, you will do what they do. And that's, hey, look, it's not a bad thing to actually seek to do that. The epistles have many instructions to God's people to listen to and to obey their leaders, to imitate their way of life and to follow them as they follow Christ. And the Bible is clear that the shepherds, as I've said before, of the flock and the teachers are to watch their own lives carefully, that they are to watch their doctrine closely and that they are to also ensure that they are above reproach. And so when you think about it, if the one that you are listening to and the one that you are following and the one that you are imitating is a false teacher leading you to a false gospel, that is likely where you also will end up. 
It is worth making difficult decisions and moves in life in order to sit under the sound teaching of a godly pastor. Because if you eat the fruit of a bad tree, you will get sick and you will eventually die. Which is why, especially in our era of instant teaching available at our fingertips, the most important teacher in your life should be that of your local pastor. You see, you can't, you can't watch the life of Paul Washer or Kevin DeYoung or Matt Chandler. Now, of course, you can profit from their teaching. I, I do so myself. But we ought to do that with discernment. And that is where your local pastor can help. You see, I've, I've loved it when some of you have come to me and asked about whether certain teachers that you're listening to are sound or not. I think that's a wonderful thing. To, I think that's what we should do anyway, whether you're doing it with me or with other members of the church. And so that's, I'm not saying you should filter, you should check everything by me. I certainly don't know everything about every teacher in, in, that is out there. But it means that as your pastor, I can discern that with you. And it means that I have greater insight now into where you are at, into the things that, that you are thinking about and growing in and wrestling with, and I can pastor you better. And I hope that for those of us, who, those who are only with us temporarily, who are only here for, for short periods of time, or for those who might be moving away from Darwin in the future, I, I hope and pray that this is a significant factor in your considerations about which local church you hope to join. Is the teaching of their pastors sound? Do you observe good fruit in the lives of the elders at this church. Listen to their teaching. Spend time with them. Get to know them so that you may observe and assess the fruit of their lives. If possible, do this before you even make a decision about where you go. And do so with an open Bible, especially to Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. Because they will be the greatest influence in your spiritual life. They will be the ones who will either encourage and exhort you to keep walking the hard way or they will be ones who will slowly poison your appetite for godly fruit. But remember that such men are also fellow pilgrims with you. I am not the good shepherd. Josh is not the good shepherd. If either of us had grown up in the country, we might be a good shepherd. But none of us are the good shepherd. Josh and I, any other pastor or elder whose ministry you sit under, they are still sheep. That's why sometimes we use the term under shepherd, which I think is a great word to use. Because shepherds of the flock sit under the good shepherd the one who is the head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we walk the narrow way together. We are fellow pilgrims. Even as under shepherds, we are on the same road. Brothers and sisters, persevere. 
The way, the gate is narrow. The way is hard. Only few take it, but it leads to life. Let me finish with a reference from the book that I mentioned earlier, The Pilgrim's Progress. Allow me to exhort you to do as Christian did. Christian is the name of the main character. Listen to what he did when he first set out on his journey and his wife and children tried to call him back. They lived in the city of destruction. And they tried to convince him not to go. This is what he did. Christian put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled. Keep your eyes on Jesus and your eye on the destination as you walk the narrow way. Life, life, eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your mercy and your grace, which makes it possible for us to enter the narrow gate. We thank you for the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who opened the way. Father, we pray that you would help us because it is far too often, more often than we would like, that we fix our eyes not on heavenly treasure but on earthly treasure. That so often we look around at others living their lives of ease and comfort and we wonder whether the cost is worth it. Lord, please be gracious to our weary souls. May your Holy Spirit breathe life into us. And Father, please help us to press on with eyes on the price trusting in you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.